airwaves, here is my request. You don't have to play it, but I hope you'll do your best. I've been listening to your show on the radio, and you seem like a friend to me. Party to hop off for 8 o'clock at the Greater 3UZ Sammy Show for Friday night. Okay, the time is 22 before 9, 12.72 SM with Ian McRae in the morning. 4AP and Kevin Hillier Sunday morning out for a couple of showers later today and a top of 25. Well, it's 27 past 12 right now. This is Laurie Bennett at 2SM. At 24 to 8 with Peter Grayson. Town at the moment, 17 degrees. Howdy, hi, Victoria. Stand the man. Hello. Well, hi and welcome once again to Pilots of the Airwaves. It is our 40 minutes or so where we get to speak with the people behind the voices who were friends to a whole generation. And today's guest started off in the Apple Isle before moving to the mainland where he transformed into a star, S-T-A-R-R, before becoming one of the most influential radio executives of the 80s and 90s. He is, of course, Greg Smith. I hope your day's been fun, you're on the downhill road, Greg Smith's gonna rock you till Hey, Greg Smith, welcome to Pilots, and thanks for joining us. Uh, thank you, Paul, for inviting me. Now, Greg, rewinding the tape right back, born in Hobart, a product of Clarence High School down there in Tassie, what would you consider to be your areas of strength in the classroom in the day? Um, funnily enough, look, I wasn't great at school, but um, I remember I had, a, uh, I had a teacher for social studies called uh, Jim Menager, and... Uh, and he told me one day, and I wasn't working hard enough, and he told me one day that uh, he said, look, look, son, you'll be digging ditches when you leave school. And I said, and I thought, oh, that's that's interesting. So it made me work really hard. And, in fact, my father had bought this uh, memory course called Trent, Trent Memory, I remember. It. And so I went through it, and uh, I... Uh, I used the principles of this memory course and studied social studies. And that year I won the social studies prize. <laughs> now, your mother was also a bit apprehensive about your career choice. Do you think that was because she doubted your ability or she knew that most likely you'd end up moving into state? Um, yeah, good question. Yeah, she wasn't that excited about me being uh, getting into radio. She probably thought it was uh, uh, something that wouldn't last. So... Uh, and, yeah, I think I proved it wrong. Living in Tassie, but one of your early influences was Ward Pally Austin. Yes, I saw um, I, there was a special documentary on television. And uh, I think it was about 1966. And uh, there was a documentary on Ward. And, uh, and when I saw that, that's when I knew I wanted to be a radio announcer. First appointment was 4BU in Burnie, four hours up the National Highway to the top of Tassie. How did you score that first gig? Um Funnily enough, I uh, I was working for uh, I I worked in Hobart. I had two jobs in Hobart. I worked in a furniture store called Coogan's, and then uh, I left that and 
tried sent out tapes and was trying to get a job and uh, anyway I, I I had no luck and uh, uh, and I I got a job at the taxation department and I was only there about a week and I got a letter from uh, Cliff Nunn and 7BU saying uh, there's a job available for you so off I went. Next stop was 3SH in Swan Hill and then back to 7HO in Hobart. What were some of the unique lessons that you learned from those first three jobs? Oh, look, you've got to work hard. You've got to do your preparation. And, uh, uh, yeah, look, learn as much as you can about the radio industry. And, uh, yeah, look, I really enjoyed it. And uh, I learned a lot during those years. Now, one of the true legends of radio in Australia, of course, Rod Muir, plied his announcing trade on 7HO after returning from the States. Do you ever catch up with Rod on air? And did your paths ever cross when you eventually landed the job at the station? Uh, I used to listen as a kid. I heard, uh, I heard Rod Muir on, on, on 7HO, and uh, yeah, it was, he was one of, the, one of the people to inspire me to get into, into radio announcing. And uh, Rod used to do this funny thing where he used to read out uh, uh, names from the uh, Hobart telephone book as, as a... <laughs> as a segment and I thought that was pretty pretty unique. More music, more music, 3XY. Now that first big break came when you landed the gig at 3XY in Melbourne in 1971. Looking at the roster at the time in August 1970, the lineup was Brian Lehman, Mike Walsh, Graham Kennedy, Bill O'Brien, Mike Jeffries and Graham Berry. By 1972 it was yourself, Trevor Smith, Laurie Bennett, Joe Miller, John Scott and Bill Drake. Seismic change in both personnel and format in a relatively short time. What was the 3XY you walked into like in 1971? Yeah, yeah. Rod Muir was uh, was consulting the radio station and Trevor Smith was uh, assistant program director. Dick Hemming was the actual program director. And um, yeah, Rod basically had brought uh, a format back from the US, the Bill Drake format, play the hits and uh, don't talk much. And uh, and I started on uh, Midnight to Dawn, and um, and uh, yeah, they worked me pretty hard in those days. I was doing uh, five nights a week, and uh, and I had to come in twice a week to do uh, to come into announcers meetings. And uh, I remember one day, uh, my wife and I we, we lived in uh, South Yarra, and uh, and uh, we didn't have a car, and I used to get the train in and out. And uh, anyway, this morning. Uh, Oh, the other thing I had to do, I had to help out on in news. I had to type up stories when I came off air at five o'clock. And uh, so I didn't get out till about eight o'clock some mornings. And uh, one morning uh, I got on the train and I woke up, I was in Frankston. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, I, they, they worked me pretty hard. And uh, I always liken it to a, a, a piece of coal being, uh, being suppressed and uh, eventually turning into uh, something better. Obviously, Rod Muir decided that there couldn't be two Smiths on the roster, and, well, Holger Brockman was just too big a mouthful for the average listener to digest, so he went with a couple of well-known radio names from the States. What did you know about WFUN in Miami and the original Dick Starr? Yeah, look, I didn't know much. I was told that Bill Drake and Dick Starr were uh, famous American program directors, and uh, in the end, Dick Starr beat uh, Bill Drake at, uh, in one of the markets. That's, that's all I remember from those times. 
Now by that time, the strength of 3UZ was starting to wane and 3AK with its Wrinkly's campaign was probably the emerging threat. Is that how it was viewed at XY at the time? Yes, because Rhett Walker was programming 3AK and uh, and doing a very good job. And uh, yeah, it was, it was a tough battle. And uh, and uh, But in the end, XY uh, uh, won through. And, uh, and as you know, 3AK changed format to beautiful music. Now, by 1974, things were looking pretty good and there were some fair incentives thrown around if the station topped the ratings book, something that Bob Beck, the general manager, had to be reminded of when the station finally hit number one. That's correct. Uh, um, I think, I think it, uh, I can't remember, I may have been uh, John O'Donnell suggested the idea of uh, we should all write uh, and sign a letter to Bob Beck to remind him that uh, he'd promised us that uh, once the station went to number one, that each of us would get $200 uh, a week. Uh, as salary. Yeah, it was good money in those days. So back home to Hobart to 7HT for a spell before joining the Paul Thompson, Brendan Sheedy, DB Music juggernaut, first as a solo presenter, and then of course as part of the Smithy and Cox duo with Jeff Cox. Firstly, how much did you learn from those first two about the other side of radio? Um, yeah, look, I was always impressed with uh, with Paul Thompson, and uh, and uh, I remember that uh, Paul... Uh, uh, Paul had wanted uh, the Greyhound Racing, the racing to disappear from 3DB. And uh, and uh, anyway, it, it never happened in the end, even though some promises were made and uh, and uh, a number of us left, including uh, uh, Paul in the end. So, but uh, uh, Brendan, Brendan was an interesting character and, uh, and uh, he, he used to have very good ears. He used to, uh, he'd drag you into the control room and he'd say, have a listen to that. What do you think of the sound of... Uh, I've just I've just adjusted the sound slightly. What do you think? And uh, and I used to say, well, it is AM, Brendan. <laughs> now, given the star-studded lineup and the targeted music format, did we actually underestimate how good DB music really was? Yeah, look, it was an exciting time because, as you know, disco music was uh, very hot at the time, and uh, and you know there was a lot of silver convention and. Uh, the BGs and uh, yeah, no, it, it was a very exciting time. And, and I'm, I've actually got a photo of uh, of me sitting uh, next to members of the Silver Convention that I must uh, post one of these days. Now, Smithy and Cox was a bit of a combination of love songs and dedication meets Nightline. What were some of the more memorable in-depth topics covered by the pair of you? Um, we used to do uh, one thing. We used to use Brian Lehman as Dr. Love and he'd come on and uh, and give uh, very funny love advice. So uh, we'd ask him questions, and uh, and he did a terrific job as, uh, as as Dr. Love. Now, as you well know, pairings on radio can sometimes be a little hit or miss. Why do you think the combination of you two together works so well? Well, I think because I, I was I was the radio guy, and uh, I was controlling the panel, and uh, and Jeff was sitting the other side of of the console, and. Uh, uh, yeah, I, I think because we were so different and, uh, yeah, I think it, it clicked because of that. It was a lot of fun working with Jeff because uh, he was great at ad-libbing and uh, had 
had many life experiences as a musician and uh, had many stories to tell. And uh, it came in very handy because we used to interview uh, uh, quite a number of artists uh, and uh, and it really get to the core of, of their business. And uh, yeah, no, it was terrific. Also around that time at DB Music, you would have crossed paths with the great Graham Kennedy. Any quick GK stories that you can relate to us? The interesting thing about Graham, he was so down to earth and a terrific guy, loved to chat. And uh, and he, I remember he told me the story that uh, he had a Rolls Royce because I think he lived down the peninsula and uh, the Mornington Peninsula. And uh, and he's, anyway, it used to get scratched all the time. These these people would come and scratch it, so he decided he'd get he'd get a uh, he'd get a Holden instead. <laughs> <laughs> Back to 3XY in 1980 with a pretty formidable lineup, including Gavin Wood, Chris Maxwell, Gary Supreme, Barry Bissell, Greg Evans, John Pitts, the list just goes on. How different was the XY you left in the mid-70s compared to the early 80s version? Yeah, that's, that's, that's a very good question. Um, I don't think there was a lot of difference. I think it, it, the format had matured, and uh, I think there was more talk than there was in the Rod Muir days. Yeah, no, I, I think it was pretty similar to what it was in the 70s. Now, this, of course, was your first taste of program directing with one Smith out and one Smith in. Yes, yes. Um, funnily enough, talking about Brendan and uh, Paul Thompson before, one of the things that uh, between them, they said to me uh, when I was at 3DB, you should think about becoming a program director. And uh, as it turned out, when uh, Graham Smith left, uh, uh, Stan Guilfoyle, the managing director, asked me to become program director. One of the major moments, I think, in, in my radio career, which I think was very important, was uh, one thing that Stan Guilfoyle did, which was terrific for me, was send me to America for two weeks to study. And uh, I ended up going into a radio station in San Diego called KGB, and I met up with uh, uh, the general manager, Jim Price, and he introduced me to... Um, his program director, Larry Bruce. And they were terrific. And Larry Bruce was the keen strategist and a researcher. And he showed me what he was doing with his music research. And uh, he was kind enough to, as I was leaving, I was there for about three or four days, and I'd go in every day and, and sit in on a meetings. And he handed me his formulas for, or the formula for his music research. So I took it back to 3XY, and uh, and with the help of Bill Earl, who was the finance uh, director at the time, uh, we put in the music research system and uh, we also did an AMT, probably one of the first AMTs in Australia. And uh, that really helped uh, with the ratings. And uh, I, that was a major turning point in my radio career to, uh, to meet up with Larry. And uh, he was a mentor for, for many years and uh, he shared lots of... Uh, very useful information. So with that experience from the US and, and the local vibe here on the airwaves, when did you feel that FM was starting to really take hold? Well, I could see during during the 80s, I could see that uh, I, I knew looking at the American market that FM would win in the end. And, uh, and, and it was in, you know, February, I think February 84, when I decided to go to SAFM, Paul Thompson, Paul Thompson, uh, uh, 
asked me to come and uh, and it's funny because people said to me why would you why would you leave melbourne why would you go to adelaide and go to fm fancy going to fm that won't work and uh, i knew deep down that it would so yeah it was a, it was a, a turning point in my career yeah, AM to FM, Melbourne to Adelaide. So how long did it take to get to know the city overall and develop a format that you're actually happy with? Yeah, what was interesting was when I got there, uh, Paul was Paul had also been program director and as well as general manager. And uh, he said, look, just leave things as they are and just take it all in and then decide what you want to do. And... Uh, and anyway, so the, the first survey came out and I didn't change anything really. And, and the survey went down from memory. And uh, and Paul said to me, he called me into the office and said, look, uh, do what you want to do. Whatever you want to do, do it. Uh, you know, we want to be number one. And so I, I, I changed the research system. I, I changed the music and uh, and worked with the announcers and uh with uh, with some luck, uh, we went number one the next survey, and as you as you know, we became the first commercial FM station in Australia to get to number one. Absolutely, how satisfying was that? Yeah, it was terrific. It was a terrific day. So uh, yeah, I, I, I'll never forget the smile on Paul Thompson's face. <laughs> yeah, I can imagine. Ten years as group program director for Osterio must have been many highlights in that time, but none more than having all FM stations under the Osterio umbrella hitting number one at the same time in a single survey. So what was the magic formula that got you that incredible result? Well, look, it was, it was a mixture of, um, really a mixture of strategy and research and uh, strategy research and also uh, creativity. And, you know, we worked really hard and look, uh, having Paul Thompson uh, working with me was, you know, was terrific because he enabled me to uh, to cut through corners and cut through tape red tape that uh, normally a program director wouldn't be able to get through so yeah it, it was a case of that and i'm i'm having learned strategy from larry bruce and, uh, and 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 working with paul and understanding his principles you know i think that combination uh, was 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 why we were able to cut through so well so, Greg, weighing everything up, uh, where do you think uh, you got your most satisfaction from behind the microphone or behind the desk? Behind the desk, really. Yeah, I, I, I was a better programmer than radio announcer, I have to say. A couple of quick questions. You had some great battles over the years. Tell us about the 4 Triple G versus CFM or the Ian Grace versus Greg Smith. <laughs> yeah, look, um, yeah, the Triple M, um, as you know, with the ratings... Uh, the way way Osterio was built. I may give some history on on how Osterio came to uh, buy these radio stations. Um, Paul Thompson said to me one day, "Look, uh, what do you think about you know buying some radio stations, getting into some regional markets?" And I said to him, "Look, I, I think we should. I wouldn't worry about that. I think we should get with the big boys. We should uh, we should concentrate on the capital cities." And so. And so we did. And uh, the first station that uh, uh, Osteria bought was Fox FM, and uh, we got it to number one within a year. And the next station was uh, Today FM. And uh, that took two years, and that was a tougher battle, and mainly because of uh, 
uh, Doug Mulray being on breakfast at Triple M, he was uh, he was so strong in that shift that uh, it, it took a long time to get there, but we got there in the end. And taking on Ian Grace, how'd that go? Oh, Ian Grace was uh, was you know, program director, or well, the group program director of uh, of the Triple M Network, and uh, yeah, look, it was fun working against Gracie, and uh, yeah, I've got a lot of time for him, and uh, yeah, he uh, he did some great things, and uh, one of the things he did was he stole uh, Jamie Dunn from uh, B105 one day, and uh, I remember um, I got a call from. Uh, uh, a colleague and and told me that uh, Jamie Dunn was about to uh, leave B105 and and go across the street to uh, uh, 4 M. and uh, so I rang uh, I rang Ed Breslin who was the general manager of B105 and also Brad March and I said listen uh, Jamie's about to leave you better get onto it and uh, anyway they got Jamie into the office and Jamie said no nah, no I'm not going anywhere and two days later he resigned and I'll never forget and uh, I just said to Brad you got to get him back. And uh, I don't know whether you know the story, but Brad and Ed uh, went to his house and he wasn't home, but they sat in the car for about four or five hours waiting for him to arrive. And uh, they did a deal with him and got him back. So we had those kind of battles and uh, we did things like um, uh, we got a big uh, billboard, we, we big billboard sign outside of uh, Triple M in Brisbane. And uh, the sign was uh, uh, the innovator, not the imitator. <laughs> now, Greg, you are known by your staff as a great motivator, and there's a guy called Charlie Fox from Triple M in Sydney, I believe, that was a great motivator for you. How, how so? Yes, Charlie. Uh, Charlie sent me uh, sent me a one way ticket to uh, Sydney to Adelaide, <laughs> and uh, and so you know it, it really uh, inspired me to work harder and. Uh, and I was able to cash that ticket in and, and get the money. So <laughs> I thank him for that. Yeah, but we did some interesting things. We, uh, when we attacked Triple M in Sydney, uh, we hired this truck driver and uh, he had all these rocks in, uh, in the back of his truck and a big sign saying uh, another, another load of heavy rock on its way to Triple M. Okay, tell us about that trip to Darwin and sitting in on the breakfast program up there and how it almost changed the course of broadcasting in Australia. Uh, yes. Yes, I, uh, I was, uh, at that stage, I was a consultant uh, and uh, I'd set up the ESP as a consulting company and uh, I'd gone to Darwin and Bill Earl was the general manager of, uh, of Hot, Hot FM in Darwin. And I used to go uh, every couple of months on a visit and uh, spend a couple of days there. And I monitored breakfast this morning and uh, Carl Sandilands was on. And uh, I thought, gee, this guy's incredible. And uh, when I got back, uh, I said to Jeff Ellis, who was the uh, group PD of Osteria, I said, you got to hire Kyle. you got to hire Kyle. And uh, he did. And the rest is history. And, and thank heavens that Kyle still gives me credit for that. Now, we spoke before about motivation, etc., and you had some unique ways of motivating staff, one including a guy called Barry Pang at one stage. Yes, we were, we were fighting against uh, uh, what would have, would have been Eon at the time, and uh, it was a, a fierce battle. And, uh, and so what we did is, uh, I, well, what I did was I got uh, Barry Pang, who was a friend of mine, and uh, a kung fu master, uh, Wing Chung, and... Uh, I got him to come in with his students and uh, and 
some of them were dressed with Fox FM T-shirts and the others had Eon T-shirts on. And, uh, of course, the Fox guys cleaned up the Eon guys. <laughs> <laughs> bit of motivation for them. No doubt. Hey, speaking of things weird and a little bit different, what can you recall about those days at the Mountain View Hotel running discos with a guy called Gavin Wood? We worked a number of venues, and uh, uh, I think one, one of the one of the most interesting nights at the Mountain View was um, was we'd organised for um, the two guys from Doctor Hook to come and make an appearance, and uh, it was promoted that they'd be uh, appearing with us that night. And uh, anyway, they arrived, and uh, we could see that the crowd expected them to sing. And luckily, we had a guitar nearby, and uh, yeah, in the end, they did they did perform for us. So that that was a terrific night, but a bit scary because we, we were a bit concerned that uh, we might get lynched. Now we did skip over your time at Three SH pretty quickly, but it was probably the one appointment that ultimately changed basically your life forever. That's right. At Three SH is uh, where I met my wife Patty. So uh, yeah, she was working there, and uh, yeah, so we became an item and. Uh, ended up getting married, so it was terrific. So what does Greg Smith do these days to keep himself occupied? Well, pretty much um, I like to do share trading, and uh, I spent some time on that, and uh, uh, a, a good friend of mine, Brad Smart, who lives nearby, he, he does some share trading as well, and, uh, and uh, we talk about it and uh, look for opportunities. So uh, uh, I do that, and I go to the gym uh, about three days a week, and uh, yeah, that that keeps me amused and uh, keeps keeps the mind uh, uh, strong. When you twiddle the dial these days, where do you generally end up? Uh, I listen to uh, a good friend of mine uh, is Ryan Rathbone, and uh, I spotted Ryan when he was working for RG Capital years ago as an up and comer, and uh, and uh, yeah, I catch up with Ryan on a regular basis and. Uh, so I, I listen mainly to his station, Hot 91, on the Sunshine Coast. And uh, as you probably know, he's now the uh, the regional uh, group PD or content director for uh, ARN. Okay, Greg, time to fire 12 of the best at you. Where were you when you heard that John Lennon had died? 
Yes, I was music director at 3XY and, and doing the afternoon shift. And um, I remember that uh, Graham Smith decided, who was program director, decided that rightly so should do a, do a, a, a big music special on the Beatles. And uh, he decided to call it, and then there were three. Uh, unfortunately, it wasn't a great name because there was a lot of backlash to the station, but uh, it was a terrific special. The last concert ticket you paid for? Uh, Paul, I can't remember that. I went to too many free ones, I think. Mm, reoccurring theme, that one. Uh, the concert act that you regret never seeing? Prince. I should have gone to see Prince. I'm, I regret that. The one word you had trouble pronouncing on air? Griffith. <laughs> Not that I had to say it very often, thank heavens. Yeah, interesting choice. Hey, listen, was there ever an incident on air that had you thinking you might get those Don't Come Monday orders? Yes. When I was at 7BU and I was doing breakfast and Cliff Nunn was general manager and sometimes Cliff would go to Hobart for meetings and what he'd do, he'd organise for a, uh, in fact, a local petrol station to, to ring a cab to come and pick me up if I slept in. And anyway, he went to Hobart this day and forgot to do it. And so I woke up at, I was supposed to be on air at six o'clock. I woke up at quarter to eight, turn on the radio, dead air. So I race in and I think, what am I going to do with all these commercials? So I played them all in a row. (laughs) (laughs) Just wondering, how would uh, Greg Smith, the GM, have handled that guy? Yeah, that's a very good question. Yeah, that person may have been fired or suspended for sure. Skyhooks or Sherbert? Um, I like them both, but I'd have to say Skyhooks because I used to um, uh, compare uh, a dance um, in in Melbourne and Skyhooks used to play quite often. Uh, Not with Shirley Strawn, by the way, with another singer. And I could I could hear the terrific songs that they were singing. And uh, I, in fact, uh, I talked to some record companies. I said, you should get onto these guys because uh, their songs are terrific. No one took any notice, of course, until Michael Gudinski came along and uh, signed them up. Rolling Stones or the Beatles? Yeah, I have to say both. Yeah, during my teenage years, yeah, the, the Beatles and Stones, I liked them both. Greg, do you have a most treasured piece of memorabilia from those early radio days? Yeah, that's a very difficult question. I think that uh, I've got lots of clippings from my past radio days. So, yeah, look, it, it's, it, it's, it's very hard. I've, I've got to actually got – I do have a, a bomber jacket from both SAFM and Fox FM, so that, that's pretty dear to me. The biggest news story that broke while you were on air? Yeah, look, um, I think um, – yeah, that's a, that's a very good question. I, I was I was trying to think about that the other day, and uh, yeah, nothing nothing really comes to mind. Okay, the moment that someone walked into your studio when you were suddenly starstruck. Yes, uh, not so much into my studio, but into my office. Uh, Martha from who who did um, Echo Beach didn't know she was there, and she and uh, the music director brought her in to introduce me, and so yeah, I, I love the song, and uh, yeah. Best words of advice from a program manager. Become a program director. <laughs> nice one. Hey, listen, are there any words of advice that you've handed down over the years? I think I think one of the uh, – I don't know who said it, but I think it's a great saying, and I've, I've, I've 
said this to my children and said to uh, many up-and-coming uh, um, performers, attitude determines destiny. And uh, I think as an employer that it's the number one thing you should be looking for. Finally, Greg, two albums you consider to be the soundtrack of your teenage years. We talked earlier about uh, the Rolling Stones and the Beatles, and I'd have to say uh, um, Rolling Stones' Aftermath and uh, Beatles' Rebel Soul. Well, Greg, it's fair to say there's plenty of people in both Tasmania and Melbourne who fondly remember Dick Starr and Greg Smith on the radio and hundreds of thousands more right across Australia who have been influenced by your astute programming skills and leadership. Hey, listen, thanks for joining us today on Pilots. Thank you, Paul. It's been a pleasure. Greg Smith on Pilots of the Airwaves. Mm-hmm.